Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Crushing Real Estate with Brian Pham, where we interview real estate professionals around the industry. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a very positive review. We release an episode every single Sunday, so stay tuned. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Crushing Real Estate. Today we have a very special guest. His name is Rich Kwok. Rich is a real estate investor here in the Bay Area. He's also a real estate developer and flipper and a full-time real estate agent. Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks for, uh, thanks for accepting and uh, coming on. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thank you, Brian. Um, yeah, I've been in real estate for about uh, 19 years. And uh, I started as an agent. I'm still an agent. Um, I've also uh, have a lot of investment properties. Mm-hmm. Um, we started flipping in 2000, around 2011. Wow. Yeah. So we've been through uh, a lot of different flips mm-hmm. and, um, you know, pretty much, uh, I started as an engineer mm-hmm. and now I pretty much, uh, live, breathe and practice real estate. Wow. That's really cool. So you mentioned that you started as an engineer. Uh, was that what you studied back at UCLA? And yes. And how long were you engineer for before you decided to make that switch to real estate? Um, so yeah, I uh, I went to UCLA for computer science. Wow. Uh, I graduated, worked for about two years. Um, I had uh, done part time work at the college during mm-hmm. my whole uh, my school. Okay. So total uh, was about five years, I guess. Uh, basically, uh, starting with uh, customer service for mm-hmm. dial-up modems mm-hmm. back in the day. So I hope I don't age myself too much. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I learned um, how to talk to people, how to be patient. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when I graduated, I was a software engineer uh, working for a lot of the uh, startups, the IPO startups. Wow. How'd you make that transition over from tech to real estate? What caused that, that turning point for you? So, um, so to be honest, uh, I, when I graduated, I was pretty ambitious. Uh, I, I still am very ambitious, but, um, I met a coworker that, um, was making a hundred thousand wow. back in the day, you know, mm-hmm. it was a lot of money mm-hmm. and I said, okay, let me go ahead and try to make that my first year out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my first job, it was about $35 an hour, which was pretty good at the time. Um, and then, uh, so I started to look for contract positions, um, because they were paying so much more. Mm-hmm. So I secured a really, really good contract, um, almost about $120 an hour. Wow. That's really good. Yeah. And, uh, it was basically a contract for HP. Mm-hmm. 9-11 happened and then, wow. uh, and then the companies decided to get rid of contractors. So, Essentially, I had the option of either going full time, maybe making about eighty thousand dollars, maybe working for the same company mm-hmm. instead of contracting or uh, doing something else. Mm-hmm. And when you make uh, when you when you're young and you make a lot of money, you know, two hundred mm-hmm. or two hundred fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, there's not a lot of opportunities that you can see because everything is going to be kind of a downgrade. Yeah. So, I had the expectation. I was driving a really nice car. I had my first house uh, right away. Um, mm-hmm. 
because I was making a lot and saving a lot. Mm -hmm. So real estate seemed the way to go. Um, so I collected unemployment uh, for about eight months. Okay. I got my real estate license mm -hmm. as well during that time. I studied, um, went to night classes, and then uh, that's how I got into it. That was wow. a that was really cool. Did you invest while you had your job, or did everything come afterwards? Um, I mean, I only had my uh, I only had my house. Okay. So you know, um, to be honest, I did have two cars. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, Mercedes. But I, because I was young, I didn't know where to spend my money, right? So yeah. I didn't even think about investment properties. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't knowledgeable at all about investing at all. I just, mm -hmm. I was actually trying to save enough money um, and lock it into a, a CD or something to where I wouldn't have to work. And I know that was kind of, that's very ambitious, you know, mm -hmm. at that age. I was yeah. about 24 at the time. That's so great. Yeah, but then uh, what happened is um, all of these CDs, like they they would pay somewhere between six percent or mm -hmm. maybe ten percent. You know, if you invest in like a um, a mutual fund, mm -hmm. and then eventually, uh, as the market shifted, then they started to reduce those CD rates. Yeah. So, so you can't really rely on that to feed you just the interest and live off the interest. Yeah. So I basically uh, started my career selling houses. Um, you really know, I had my savings, but I had to I had to sell houses and mm -hmm. give it a full time uh, try. That's really cool. It, it sounds really similar to myself as well. Like I did study computer science back in college, but unlike you, I didn't quit cold turkey. I started investing while having a job. I'm too afraid, you know, to hear the story that you you didn't really invest before that and became full time real estate. It was like whoa. How that happened, you know? That's pretty cool to hear. Yeah, thanks. Um, and the path was uh, was pretty simple too because mm -hmm. I I realized that my clients were making a lot of money because I was helping them buy and sell their houses. So yeah. one year they would buy the house for four hundred thousand, and then two years later they would sell for six hundred. Oh, so I, I knew right away that they're making more money than me. So I better also get started investing myself. Yeah, I like that a lot. So flash forward to your first deal, like after you became like full-time real estate, what was the first deal like? How'd you, how'd you find it and how'd you get, how'd you become a part of it? So, um, I was pretty nerdy, uh, you know, being an engineer and I was actually, uh, looking at loan guidelines. Oh wow. And my first deal, uh, I did a couple deals, um, together. So my first deal was a condo and mm -hmm. it was also a fourplex. Mm -hmm. Um, and the fourplex, uh, I realized that it was in a special area, a uh, census tract area. Mm -hmm. So I could basically come in with uh, about 8% down. Oh, wow. What's the census tract area, by the way? Uh, I guess every 10 years, uh, there are certain areas that qualify for um, special incentives from okay. the government. Mm -hmm. And a lot of lenders um, are supposed to lend or provide looser guidelines. So I think they call it uh, CRA incentives now. Okay. Um, but yeah, I started to read those guidelines and I'm like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. I mm -hmm. can buy an apartment building uh, with mm -hmm. four units and I could borrow a whole, a big amount of money at around, uh, I think it was 6%, which was really good at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, actually it was no, 5.125%. Oh, wow. Everything else was 6% and this is like a 40 year fixed at 5.125%. 40 year fix. Wow. Yeah, so I figured, okay, if I can somehow um, take advantage of this program, mm -hmm. then my risk is very little. 
the apartment building was about $860,000. Okay. And uh, 8% of that, you know, with closing costs is about 80000 right? Mm -hmm. So I'm leveraging a big amount of money with very little uh, down payment for myself. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then, yeah, and then the condo, um, I was living at the time, so there were some uh, first-time buyer incentives, mm -hmm. things like that. So it got a really good rate of like 30-year fixed, uh, maybe around 5.5%. Mm -hmm. um, so those were my first two deals uh, done almost simultaneously. Wow. That's really amazing because most people would lend money first or be a part of one deal. But you decided, hey, let's be a part of two deals at the same time. That's, that's really, yeah. really crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Last year, um, we got a Starbucks, but we also got a development project. So mm -hmm. sometimes we do 1031 exchange into two deals, which is allowed. Um, mm -hmm. One deal typically is less risky and the other deal might be more risky. So we kind of divide the risk into two, but it's totally allowed under the 1031 rules. Oh, wow, I did not know that. I just learned something today. Thank you, Rich. Appreciate that. Okay, so you, you kind of hopped into two deals. Can you tell us what year this was? So we kind of have some sort of perspective of when this all happened. What year it was? Um, this was around 2005. So, um, so yeah, basically after I lost my uh, engineer job, mm -hmm. um, uh, I had sold my house. I only had it for about a year. Mm -hmm. um, and then so this was me re-entering the real estate market after, uh, after that, after 2000. Okay. So this, so these, uh, these two projects, uh, these two investments were around 2005. Okay. Wow. That's really, really cool. And then fast forward to now, I, I mean, I see that you've been doing some real estate development projects and real estate flipping projects. Mm -hmm. And that kind of takes us to the topic of this podcast, which is how not to lose money on a deal. Can you give us some advice on like your, throughout your experience, like, what kind of tips, what kind of expectations we should have on how not to lose money on a deal? Uh, we'll start with real estate development first, and then we'll segue over to real estate flipping. Sure. So, um, uh, as you know, uh, you make money when you enter the deal, not when you, not when you exit. Mm -hmm. And um, we are very, very careful when we enter a development project. We always... Uh, we're definitely not the smartest people in the room. Mm -hmm. We rely on a lot of other people. So when we prepare our analysis, we will ask for the seller's analysis on the development project. We'll ask for the bank's analysis. We'll engage another bank and incorporate their analysis. So sometimes we'll spend as much as um, almost two weeks okay. uh, looking at a spreadsheet and mm -hmm. tweaking it, um, trying to figure out the risk. And um, we also try to figure out the exit. So for example, if the market were to crash, mm -hmm. could we exit? Could we, could we hold on to the property? Could we rent out the, uh, the units? Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, we have to do a lot of uh, forward thinking to try mm -hmm. to capture as much uh, risk as we can. A lot of that comes with experience. But again, we're also relying on people that are a lot smarter than us mm -hmm. to help us with our analysis. Um, and then, you know, we invite those people if they want to be a partner, they can, no pressure, because then they would have analyzed it, they would have uh, blessed it in a sense. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing um, that applies with all deals is we prefer to meet the sellers. So um, it's something that a lot of people, a lot of uh, flippers may not do, mm 
Mm-hmm. We always want to understand why they're selling, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what's going on. I am a person that likes to understand, you know, why people do the things they do. Mm-hmm. Because um, selling is pretty tough. You know, you're giving yeah. up a baby that you worked on for a year or, uh, you know, or a couple years. Mm-hmm. Why are you doing that? So I want to meet them face to face. And I want to use my gut feeling to determine if they are exiting because it's a really bad deal or if they uh, have a genuine need to sell. Well, I really like that approach a lot. Um, I think my, you're right. Like flippers, we don't really interact with the sellers that much. We interact more with the listing agent. And we kind of take the listing, listing agent's word for it. And I really like that perspective where you're like, hey, like, I want to trust my gut feeling by reaching out to the, to the seller themselves to kind of talk to them to understand why they're selling. So to me, like, that's, that's a part of the human relationship approach to real estate investing that I myself haven't thought about yet. But that's, that's a really good tip. Appreciate that, Rich. Yeah, and here's, uh, here's something that I did this week, which is kind of weird. I didn't think it would work, but um, I asked the seller, listen, uh, if of this one development project, I said, Hey, you know what? Um, in a couple months, you know, if, if you get your cash and, and we can manage the project for you because mm-hmm. most of the sellers for development says, Oh, I got too many projects. You know, I, I don't have time to manage it. I asked them, would you be willing to reinvest in the project? And, and in this particular case, uh, the seller said, yeah, absolutely. You know, I like working with uh, you and Lana and, um, I'm happy to, even though we just met, you know, I'm happy to, uh, to reinvest. So it tells me um, that the project is a win mm-hmm. because, you know, they're really willing to reinvest into it later on, mm-hmm. um, you know, in some capacity. They could be consultant, um, you know, they may not be a principal, but at least they're willing to kind of stay on in a sense. Yeah. Um, and so that really uh, verifies and reinforces my gut feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really, really good tip. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a seller decides to stay onto the project. Obviously, it's not going to be a bad project, and what they're telling you tends to be the truth. Because unfortunately, in this field, like people will say a lot of things to offboard the project or miss, like they won't tell you exactly the accurate information. Mm-hmm. And to hear like that kind of affirmation where they're willing to stay on, it's it's a great tip for all of us to hear. This is really yeah. good. And you'll find that, um, you know, many times the reason that the seller is selling has to do to external factors, mm-hmm. not necessarily that they want to sell, but maybe someone in their partnership is making them sell, or maybe, um, you know, it's in a trust, uh, you know, or, or something's happening to where they still care about the property, but they just are being forced to, uh, to take this action. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, for me, I always wonder, um, why are they doing that? Because mm-hmm. it's so tedious. They got to, uh, expose it on the market and they worked on it for so long, you know, two years, um, is, uh, Menlo park, you know, the seller worked on for two years mm-hmm. and why are they giving that up? You know? Um, so, so long story short, um, you have to rely heavily on your gut feeling mm-hmm. and, and uh, you also have to make sure you check references. Okay. Because whoever gives you that deal, uh, you want to know, cause we're, so, we're all connected somehow, right? Mm-hmm. For example, I'm sure, you know, uh, you know, Sean page, uh, a lot of the people that, that we know. So mm-hmm. if, if I can tap into the network to check out a person, then um, at least I've satisfied it. So if something goes wrong later on, then I would have checked out that person, whether it be the agent, whether it be the seller. Mm-hmm. So at least I've done my due diligence. Okay. Well, that's, that's also another good tip. 
Um, and if we were to segue over to real estate flipping, right? What kind of advice and tips would you have for us not to lose money on real estate flipping compared to real estate development? Is it sort of the same process? Yeah, actually, um, you know, I started to realize that these uh, hard money lenders, as great mm-hmm. as they are, um, they make a lot more money than than uh, flippers do sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, so <laughs> you know, if we know that, you know, and no offense to anyone, but if we know that, then why do we continue to use them? Mm-hmm. What what I found is that uh, the key thing is that many sellers are willing to give you a thirty day escrow or a thirty five day escrow. It's just that no one asks. Wow. Just because the agent can earn a quick commission on a cash sale doesn't mean you have to be cash. Mm-hmm. So um, on many of our flips, you know, we'll say, okay, you know what, we'll close maybe in twenty one days, mm-hmm. and we'll rely on a good retail bank that can push that closing and go conventional. Oh wow. And then, of course, you save on the hard money fees, you save on the interest rates. But yeah, I mean, uh, I have another project where the hard money lender made almost $100,000 mm-hmm. um, on you know that particular project. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just because things, like, uh, things weren't pre-negotiated. For example, if you have to use hard money, then um, ask for an 18-month term instead of a, a 12 months, just in case something happens. Okay. Uh, Otherwise, you're paying for extension fees that can be as much as one percent for each, each extension. Wow! So you always, yeah. So when you when you buy the property, if you have to use hard money, mm-hmm. ask them, "Can I refinance right away? Can I go conventional?" Um, because many of the lenders, uh, you know, will will allow that. Mm-hmm. So we got to check with them the prepaid penalties to make sure that you know refi as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. I have a question about that, though. I think for flipper cases, like in real estate rehabs, most cases, banks would not lend on these houses. So how, how would you negotiate with the bank? Or would you just go for projects that are very light rehab where banks would still lend on them? Um, well, in general, I would say in our flipping history, we don't take on projects that have substantial rehab. Mm-hmm. It's just way too risky. So... The most that I've seen us do is um, uh, add a bedroom on a, a, a flip in San Francisco, okay. which has a definite uh, exit, you know, of three to four months timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, but we generally don't take on substantial rehab mm-hmm. because if it's in such bad condition, I'd rather tear down the house, uh, redevelop it, go modular, and get that thing back up in six months. Yeah. I don't want to deal with um, mold issues. Um, I even look at the, the windows of the house. So mm-hmm. I look at a house that needs some work. I try to see at the windows, which is going to cost somewhere between fifteen to twenty to twenty to fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Honestly, the windows are already double pane. So that tells me that at least um, that part is done, which mm-hmm. is a major cost. And then we can just focus on a light rehab. But there's definitely are banks out there now that will uh, lend on properties that are in surprising condition. So it's, uh, it, it's out there. The banks are hungry for deals and uh, you might not get maybe a 4% interest rate, but you'll probably get somewhere between five and 7%. Okay. Wow. Those, that's a really good tip. I never really thought of that. Every time I'm, I'm like going for a project, I always put like 10, 10 days closing and all cash offer and no contingencies, but you're suggesting that, hey, like we can negotiate with hard money, which means that we can 
like you can make it a 12 to 18 year term to reduce the risk for extension. So essentially, you're not paying the points up front again. And you're suggesting that we can go to the banks and be like, just try, try asking the banks, like, hey, like, would you guys be willing to lend in this fixer house? You know, like, that's, that's, that's a really good tip for all of the flippers and real estate investors to hear. Um, this yeah. When you go to the property, take videos, take mm-hmm. videos and photos, because um, the key thing is that um, you can send that to your loan officer mm-hmm. and you can ask them, hey, this is the video of the property. Feel free to show it to the underwriter. Here's some pictures. Um, and they might say something like, okay, well, that, that uh, unit might not be legal. Ca- uh, you have to take out the stove and cap the gas. So you have a plan of action. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then think about it this way too. If, you're, if, you're, uh, if your deal is 14 days, Mm-hmm. And you're going to pay two points to your hard money lender. Mm-hmm. So why don't you give those two points to the seller, right? Raise your price that you're offering them in mm-hmm. exchange for an extension for two weeks. So you can go conventional, right? Yeah. Cause you're going to pay those points anyway. So mm-hmm. let's say on a, uh, let's say it's a million dollar deal. You're, you're borrowing 800,000. That's 16 grand. That 16 grand is probably gonna make the seller happy for giving you an extra two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one thing I always like to think is that, the key thing is um, your credibility, right? So as long as you have credibility to show, hey, you know, I have this portfolio, I don't back out. That's the biggest fear that a lot of sellers have. Yeah. So in conjunction with that, because you have a really good track record, they're probably going to give you that extension so you can go conventional. Oh, wow. Yeah, these are really good tips. Can you kind of help us understand this in, in uh, real-world scenarios of cases where you were in a bad position or good position and how did you overcome it? Sure. Um, there is one, we, what I realized is that, um, what Lana and I are good at is figuring out an exit in case stuff goes wrong. Mm-hmm. So, so we're good at devising plans and executing on plans, I guess, faster than a typical person would. Mm-hmm. So, um, one flip that we, um, I got stuck holding. We don't know if we're going to lose yet. So hopefully we don't, mm-hmm. knock on wood. but, um, I did not go to the property and we got stuck holding a property in San Francisco mm-hmm. that was uh, purchased with hard money. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was pretty crazy. It was like, um, it was one bedroom on each level. Oh, wow. Okay. And then how, I, how many levels were there? There were, there were essentially, uh, there's two levels only. But uh, in San Francisco, there was um, they were renting out the bottom separate from the top, mm-hmm. which you know at the time we didn't know this, but we were basically we basically had uh, rent control in place. You know when you do that, so we had to when we bought it, we had to pay for the tenants' uh, relocation and so forth, mm-hmm. and um, we got stuck holding it. And uh, I kind of delegated uh, looking at the property. I, I totally regret that mm-hmm. because I had sold the house about two years before that had one bedroom on each level. It was a new house in Fremont, and that was like the toughest house that I got. It was basically, yeah. I had to basically sell it to a family that had a teenager, two kids, but one teenager because the downstairs uh, bedroom is mm-hmm. right outside. So whoever you know is downstairs have to be responsible. You can't put young kids on the bottom. Mm-hmm. But that was super hard to sell. I um, It took me uh, six months almost to figure out that uh, I got my seller to carry back a small loan so mm-hmm. I can get that house sold. So fast forward to this flip, um, we ended up buying this property uh, and we had a bedroom on each level. 
Mm-hmm. And they were, it was really hard in San Francisco to re-architect the plans. It's not like yeah. here where you've got big lots. Mm-hmm. So essentially we had to figure out how we can add a bedroom on either the bottom level or the top level. But in, in this particular case, we had to sacrifice a dining room. Oh, wow. Now the, the records in San Francisco are pretty old. So mm-hmm. initially they had it as a three bedroom um, and they don't update their records. So we kind of got lucky. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty lucky. Yeah. But at the same time um, we had hard money. So every single six months we're getting um, extension requests from a hard money lender. Mm-hmm. And basically uh, we had to get out of it. My partners wanted to keep the, the loan, but it was costing us, um, it was costing us uh, a lot more. So we had to figure out, okay, are we going to sell this thing or are we going to, um, or are we going to keep it? Mm-hmm. So we had to make a decision. Uh, to give an example, I'm looking at an email, like a month extension is about three grand for one month extension. That does not count the interest for that. So it was pretty, pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, three month extension is $8,400. So like, I guess, you know, um, and the other thing is that we can't default because the loan will go to a default interest rate of 12% or 14%. Mm-hmm. So I had to, um, convince my partners to hold on to the property. We we're going to add a bedroom. So we take it, uh, we have to take it off market and then rent it out because we can't refinance while it's on the market. Mm-hmm. Um, those, that this decision was very, very, very slow. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the same time, you know, when we're thinking about this type of stuff, um, and my partners, sometimes they have full-time jobs, uh, the, the loan interest is accruing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we had to hold on to that property. We were able to push the rents, uh, to, I think, uh, 4,500, um, mm-hmm. which is a big push. And then, uh, we refinanced it to a conventional loan, but it was really, really tough because, we, in order for us to refinance, we need a, we need a letter saying that the loan is, uh, is you know, not in default, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then it's also held in the LLC. Oh, wow. So, so we had to deal with title stuff, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So long story short, um, you, we kind of know that when we sell this house, because the first time we tried, it's very hard. Uh, unless you have a roommate situation where people are buying together, mm-hmm. nobody wants to have a bedroom separate from the main bedroom. Yeah. So the first thing we do is take it off the market, get get an architect to um, add the bedrooms. Mm-hmm. I think we did that for under ten grand, which is amazing. We converted huh. a bedroom into a, a bedroom, mm-hmm. and then because we have a mortgage interest, uh, we have to rent it out. So believe it or not, uh, after everything is said and done, and the refi is complete, um, we're losing like fifty bucks a month. Wow. Yeah, it's it kind of worked out. It's it's amazing, mm-hmm. but that allows us to uh, try to sell it uh, when the tenant leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, so the point is that there was a lot of different situations that were going on, mm-hmm. and you have to be really, really nimble and adaptable. Yeah, um, but you have to get out of hard money. Otherwise, that would have that would have just killed this deal. Yeah. Wow. That's that's really creative, to be honest, and very informative as well. Um, but I do have a question, though, in terms of when you were refining it out from hard money to conventional loan, um, did you find other external partners to help co-sign for the loan? Or were you guys able to refi on your, based off of your income already? Um, 
most of our partners uh, uh, are able to qualify for it. Mm-hmm. So really the, the variable here was the fact that it was held in LLC. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously there are, um, there are tax implications for taking properties in and outside of LLCs, mm-hmm. but, but ultimately uh, uh, we figured out, you know, and we made everyone comfortable with yeah. it. So we did not have to bring external partners. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Wow. So what was that? What was that process like taking the property out of LLC into, I'm, I'm assuming someone else's name for the conventional loan? What was that process like? Um, it's uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, you go down to the county, you uh, record it, you potentially pay a transfer tax. Mm-hmm. But, but again, um, you know, if we kept the hard money, we're paying $8,400 every three months. Mm-hmm. So the transfer tax and the, and the impact, you know, is very, very minimal. Yeah. You have to have a good team behind you to support it. So mm-hmm. partners may not have, um, the resources. So I would introduce them to attorneys or CPAs, because uh, every CPA or every attorney might have a different opinion. Right. Mm-hmm. So I have to present, okay, then this is a potential ramifications of doing this, but you know, knock on wood, uh, everything is stable so far. Mm-hmm. That market is kind of uh, recovering, and uh, we will hopefully exit that one um, spring of next year. Wow. Congratulations. Thanks. Cool. It's a really cool story. And for our listeners, Lana is Rich's wife. <laughs> yeah, many people don't know. Yeah. Just different last names. For our listeners to know. But yeah, that's a, that's a really, really crazy story, Like. Right? A lot of good tips and advice so far. I really liked it. Yeah. So the summary is: don't go in with hard money and without mm-hmm. an exit. That's uh, that's one of the rules. Yeah. The other and thing that the other thing I'll mention too is that um, you know, as I touched on earlier, mm-hmm. not every opportunity is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. But if you think about how tedious it is to sell a house or sell a development, mm-hmm. if everything on the market that's put on the market is some type of distress sale. Okay. Yes. It could be a divorce situation, partnership breakup. Uh, somebody could have passed away and uh, the kids got the house. Mm-hmm. So everything on the market is a distress sale. It's just coming in at the right price and the right timing. Yeah. So that's uh, that's another thing that um, that I realize is that it's so tedious to sell your house. You got to stage mm-hmm. it. So, you know, you got to, uh, even if you don't have to stage it, even if it's a, an ugly house, yeah. you're dealing with uh, maybe code violations, things like that. So many people uh, don't have the appetite for it. And that, Therein lies your opportunity. If you're going to take, you know, help the family out, uh, mm-hmm. fix it up. Everybody should win in a situation that's a distress sale, Definitely. not just not just the investor. I agree. Um, in terms of finding finding your deals, I'm assuming that you kind of source your own deals and you kind of have firsthand perspectives since you're also a real estate agent to kind of know which property to go after. Um. Yeah, I would say. Uh, so I'm a little bit. Um, uh, different. So obviously, uh, mm-hmm. probably some my uh, my my thing with uh, Sean, the training. Yeah. But you know, like I could pick up the phone, uh, get comfortable, and uh, call fellow agents and say, "Hey, do you have any deals?" Mm-hmm. Um, and nine t- nine times out of ten, uh, usually they have deals mm-hmm. that the house might not be ready, etc. So mm-hmm. uh, we have we have deals all the time where the seller is debating: Should I fix it up, or should I, uh, you know, should I just put it on the market? Right. Mm-hmm. And of course we tell them, okay, Mr. Seller, you, you fix it up. You're going to get a lot more money, mm-hmm. but many times uh, they don't want to, they would actually rather just do a quick sale. And that's something that, you know, 
I always want to try to achieve the highest price for my clients. So I want to push, 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 push. But at the same time, sometimes the seller says, you know what, Rich, I don't need to get 1.2 million. I'm happy with a million. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously we don't flip our own uh, retail deals because yeah. the conflict of interest. But mm -hmm. there's many agents that are like that where they have a portfolio of sellers and the sellers just want to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. So essentially, um, you know, I used to go out in the field, kind of crazy. I used to go in the field, visit broker offices. Um, and uh, I say, okay, what am I selling today? <laughs> and <laughs> like, okay, if I have an exchange coming, then I'll have some money. So mm -hmm. you have any deals. So I would go face to face, um, with the network of brokers mm -hmm. and basically sit down with them. And I found that many of them will call me now and say, Hey, Rich, I got this deal. Um, this is what my seller wants. I think it's too high. Um, uh, I say, okay, well, you know, uh, send me the analysis. I'll give you analysis and I'll give you an answer right away. Mm -hmm. That's the key thing is being able to give your deal source an answer right away mm -hmm. because nobody wants to waste time or burn time. Yeah. So I go out in the field, I get the deals. Um, I rarely actually do the calls, the cold calling, but I know I can. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of deals out there. There's a lot of deals out there. Um, you just have to do your analysis super fast. So you yeah. have to have a good team behind you that can pull comps that can figure out the rehab cost. And then you have to go uh, potentially fundraise in case you don't have enough. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just the cycle. So it's, it's, um, it's like we spend, we spend maybe, um, I don't know. We spend some time. Uh, we, we kind of do different, um, different modes where we're in rehab mode. You mm -hmm. know, so right now we're working on a couple of different projects. Mm -hmm. not, not all of them are flips. Uh, and then we go out and get more deals and then we go rehab mode. So I'm, I'm sure that, you know, a lot of investors are like that, yeah. but you always have to have a running pipeline and you have to have someone to manage the existing pipeline. Mm -hmm. Okay. And for our listeners that don't know the video, uh, so Rich, Rich Kwok and Sean Pan, they did a YouTube, um, YouTube video on cold calling real estate agents. I'll also include, include that in the show notes as well. Um, but it's a very good um, walkthrough and introduction how to call, cold call real estate agents to find real estate deals. Yep. And then uh, the other thing is to make sure that you're partnering with the right people. So um, I look back at the deals where I wouldn't say we lost, but I would say where um, we did work and, uh, you know, there wasn't payout. And it was just because um, sometimes the people that if you delegate – your control to someone, mm -hmm. pretty much putting your fate in their hands. Yeah. So, so that includes if you have um, if you have funds and you say, hey, you know, uh, I want to invest in this flip, and mm -hmm. then you're relying on the other person. You're not checking references. Um, many of the times, the uh, the opportunity or the person that's uh, in charge of the deal may not even view you as a partner. So mm -hmm. uh, they might just view you as a uh, funder or an investor. Mm -hmm. uh, so that means that if you don't build your controls in place, mm -hmm. then you position yourself to lose either time or money because of that. So yeah. make sure that you check references on your partner and make sure that you build in some key controls in your operating agreements. Mm -hmm. um, make sure you do weekly accountability calls, mm -hmm. um, you know, things like that. Okay. And it's also, yeah, I mean, that's a good, that's a good point. I mean, you also want to be really upfront to begin the project, to be like, hey, like, we're going to delegate this and that together. We're going to work together. Or in some situations, like, you're just a private money person, you know? So I think it's good to have, have that communication upfront and to be clear before you start the project. Otherwise, it'd be very confusing. 
I've been in a situation before. Yeah, you have to have your weekly calls. Um, even even if you just view yourself as a uh, investor, you mm-hmm. have to have your weekly accountability call. Even if you're investing a hundred grand and everyone else is investing half a million, mm-hmm. um, you know it's your money. You have to hold it. You have to hold other people accountable. Um, you can even build things if you're a pure investor. You can say, "Hey, look, um, based on this timeline here, I'm going to invest this much right now. I'm going to invest this much." You can basically build a draw schedule in there, mm-hmm. and you know the uh, if they really need your funds, then you know, at least you've got some control mechanisms in place. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing um, is because reputation matters in this business, mm-hmm. uh, you always want to do the right thing. So that means that um, we've had deals where we've personally taken the hit. And of course we pay the investors, uh, whatever, you know, whatever we promise them. You yeah. have to do the right thing because this is your investor pool. Mm-hmm. I remember going to a seminar one time and even a thank you card, you know, for, for helping, you know, with your deal help because relationships are so important. You never know when that, um, that investor you need to rely on for a future project. Mm -hmm. Um, I had the Menlo park development and that was a little crazy. It got, we took on, um, six partners for that project and it was just two were negative last year. I don't know if you remember, but the market kind of shifted. Yep. It hurt a lot. A lot of us here in the Bay area. Mm-hmm. except for Menlo Park. So uh, in the news, you know, every day they're hearing, oh, market's crashing, you know, re- recession, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so it was really stressful for me because I want to make everyone happy in this mm-hmm. in this part, but then I got negative partners that are saying, you know, it's doom and gloom and let's dump it. We had just bought that land for $5 million and they wanted to dump it for four and a half mm-hmm. and everybody would lose. And what's weird to me is that everyone was okay with losing. What? Everyone was okay with losing uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars, mm-hmm. except for me, except for me and Lana. And I had to say, okay, well, you know, I'm looking at my stats, Menlo Park. I had to get really intimate. I had to know Menlo Park by heart. So I had to know uh, the most recent sales because if I don't, partner would say, hey, look at this sale. It's it it shows that the market crashed. Yeah. So long story short, um, I had to get an investor to buy out the negative partners, mm-hmm. which, which I didn't even think of as an option going on. I thought, okay, you know what? Dump the land. That was what uh, everyone wanted to do. And I said, you know, hold on guys. You know, I, I tested the market, you know, the value was not that, not that great. Mm-hmm. But I realized that if I could bring an investor, buy out the partner, mm-hmm. do the right thing and pay them what they paid into the project mm-hmm. versus taking a hit, then, um, you know, they're happy because it's it, those two partners weren't my relationship. They were someone else's relationship. Mm-hmm. They get paid back their interest. We get on a new partner that's positive. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's how uh, we still have the project today. Otherwise, we would have lost um, probably everyone would have lost somewhere between one hundred to three hundred thousand dollars on that project. Jesus. Oh, yeah. That's insane. It's, it's very, and it's very stressful to be the only guy that says, hey, you know what? Hold on. Let's. Let's think of another way to do this thing. Okay. You, you have to be, when you have those accountability weekly meetings mm-hmm. and you realize that the group is going towards a losing mindset, yeah. you have to change that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I had no idea since I, I had no idea how to do this, but I knew that with good attorneys, um, we could rewrite the operating agreement. We could create a, uh, a buyout, uh, schedule mm-hmm. and basically make them comfortable and then bring on people that are more positive and that are, that are uh, you know willing to to believe in the project. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, uh, luckily for us, you know, Menlo Park is holding steady. 
um, mm-hmm. at a roughly about 1,400 a square feet. Wow. We just got the appraisal in. Mm-hmm. Our initial valuation was about 13.8 million exit for three houses. Nice. And the appraisal, and the appraisal came back at 14.5. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not, I don't say like, look, um, I don't rub it in and say, look, I was right the whole time because I didn't predict the market, mm-hmm. but at least we held firm and we were able to take it to the next step and then get partners that really wanted to. Mm-hmm. So, so we kind of view things a little bit differently now where, you know, um, given our experience, uh, mm-hmm. we don't want to find, we want to make sure that we have the control mechanisms in place so mm-hmm. that stuff like that can happen. You know, the negativity can be contagious. Yeah. And most products will fail if somebody is, have the mindset of, Hey, you know what? We've already lost. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's hard to change. So make sure you partner with people that are positive mm-hmm. and that, um, that genuinely have a goal to win because mm-hmm. otherwise they might, you know, sadly take you down. Wow. That's some really powerful words and tips and advice. Really, really, really appreciate that, Rich. Mm-hmm. I guess as we're coming towards the end of the show, I usually ask people a couple of questions. Uh, just based off yourself, you know, I just want to know, I just want to give a viewer like a, a good sense of who you are and how you are as a person. So the first thing is, how do you keep yourself motivated after all these years in investing? Do you have any morning routines? Do you have any affirmation affirmation that you practice? Like, what do you do to keep yourself going every single day? Um, well, um, I those of you that don't know us, uh, I have three kids. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty young, five, three, and three. I have twins, so uh, it can be quite tedious to balance to balance this. Uh, this career and then also uh, the kids, but the kids are the what keep us motivated because if we can teach um, some of these valuable concepts to our children, mm-hmm. like uh, check references on partners, uh, use your gut feeling, uh, do the right thing. If we can um, kind of uh, pass that along to our children, mm-hmm. then at least, you know, our legacy will have these values moving forward. So, so I think that, um, I think that motivates me significantly. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, you know, I started kids late in life. So for me, I'm, if I can build a passive income portfolio that generates, um, you know, maybe 200,000 a year, uh, mm-hmm. passively, then, you know, it's, uh, it's great. Yeah. Um, so that's basically it. So we can, you know, bond, I can travel more, mm-hmm. um, enjoy life. So that's a really good motivation. Mm-hmm. And then also help teaching, helping and teaching, I mean, it's why I'm doing uh, this podcast right now is uh, because there's always lessons that you can, you can learn. So I love, even if the client doesn't buy anything, I love being able to present that there's opportunities that they may not have seen. So I met with the seller for this new development that, um, that we're acquiring right now. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, I've never bought a Starbucks before. I've never bought, uh, you know, I've never had a multifamily before. Mm-hmm. So um, he's willing to learn from me. I'm willing to learn from him. You know, we have the right mindset. So even when he sells this to me, there's still going to be a relationship there and an opportunity for everyone to learn. Yeah, that sounds really, really cool. And I guess the final question to end the podcast is, Rich, what is your favorite book? So I really love um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm -hmm. I love uh, the book called Cashflow Quadrant because it's not as theoretical. Mm -hmm. It teaches you that um, if you can... uh, if you think of uh, uh, investing and income as quadrants, mm-hmm. then um, if you can generate income from all the quadrants, then great. Uh, for example, you need to have W-2 income, otherwise you can't get a loan. 
Mm-hmm. At the same time, if you have money, you need to invest it. So you need to, you know, learn how to draft the uh, uh, investments, you know, um, and you know, watch out for your money so they can grow. Yeah. Um, so I love that. Um, my favorite non real estate book is Ender's Game. I love uh, I love that book because uh, I actually I actually went to a military school growing up, so it kind of uh, it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty interesting book. So okay. Ender's Game is one of my favorite uh, sci-fi books. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll make a note of that. Hey, Rich, uh, how can our listeners find out more about you and reach out to you? Um, you can find me online. You can go Rich Clock. I'm out there. Um, I am happy to send anyone um, a private video I have that talks about investing in commercial projects, mm-hmm. um, things that are out of state that might be more lucrative. Mm-hmm. So if you just Google my name, Rich Quack, you'll see me out there um, or my website, rquack.com. Um, I love helping people. I, I don't mind sitting down with um, anyone and you know helping them invest. Cool. Awesome, Rich. Hey, thank you for all your tips and advice on how not to lose money on deals. It's a really, really informative and great podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Brian, for the opportunity. Yeah. All right.